where we witness the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and I'm a human being. And behind the glass is another human being, Patrick. Good morning, Patrick. Morning. How are you today? I am. I'm doing fine. I'm, I'm happy that we're finally going to have like um, nice, normal Minnesota weather, and and uh, there's something comforting about that. So I'm, I'm looking forward to 70s and sunny and gardening and and getting grounded that way. Um, on today's show, we're going to be uh, talking with Francis. He is an educator of indigenous history, biological and ecological knowledge. He's also the coordinator of the Native American Medicine Garden. And after serving as the coordinator for almost two decades, the University of Minnesota talked about rescinding his contract. But the food community rallied, our food sovereignty community really rallied around Francis. And for the time being, he's keeping his post. So we're going to be talking with Francis during the second half of Food Freedom Radio. First, we're going to talk about Lake Street in Minneapolis. Um, the stretch of East Lake Street between Interstate 35W and Cedar Avenue is one of the city's most thriving hubs, especially for new immigrant communities. Um, it's also a food hub for independent businesses. The recent uprisings in uh, Minneapolis damaged numerous local businesses. Uh, will the fires looting property damage, will that roll back hard-won progress? Or with the world watching us, and, and maybe more important than watching us, with the world caring about us and caring about Minneapolis, um, the, the brutal murder of George, George Floyd made visible to all the daily dehumanization faced by brown and black people. Will Lake Street rise in even a more livable and vibrant way? And that's what we're going to be talking about now. So uh, joining us to talk about Lake Street is Ice Demings. Um, he's with the Midtown Global Market. Um, you're the property and administrative manager of the Neighborhood Development Center. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you. And I'm the uh, property administrative manager at the Midtown Global Market. Okay, not cool. Not in D.C. Right. Sorry about that. Uh, but the Midtown Global Market is operated by the uh, uh, De- Neighborhood Never. Development Center. Correct. Cool. Okay, so first of all, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, okay. I'm the property administrative manager for the Midtown Global Market. Uh, I've been here almost three years. Um, I am an employee of NDC, um, and I enjoy working in this area. It's very diverse. Um, the, the colleagues and the team that I work with are uh, very knowledgeable in these types of uh, community events and community involvement, so I'm learning a lot on a daily basis. And um, so uh, most of us, I, I love the Midtown Global Market. I, I, you know, it's the old Sears building, but tell us a little yeah. bit about it. Um, well, it was opened in 2006, and it was it's a business incubator. Um, it's the idea of a lot of community members. Uh, Mike Tamale is one of them that drove it. Um, and it's along Lake Street, um, and I believe they worked, because I'm new here, there's other that have, you know, far more knowledge, but uh, based off uh, the history, it was pretty much the Midtown Global Market and the uh, Mercado, Cent- uh, Mercado Central that kind of started these incubators in the, uh, on the Lake Street area some 20 years ago. Yeah, and so uh, there's been a lot of, it's been, it was a hard one and um, <laughs> fight. It was really, a, it was a hard one fight, but Lake Street, a terribly a vibrant, wonderful community um, yes. of businesses. Um, so tell us about um, what happened um, with the uprisings. Um, there was just a lot of a lot of uh, buildings being destroyed, uh, burned down. Um, businesses had to close. Um, we were still here, sort of like a um, 
you know, we're the biggest building pretty much in the Midtown area, and we're kind of like a beacon. Um, and we had um, some damage, but not any type of damage like the uh, surrounding buildings and businesses. Okay, because you're home to uh, 45 small businesses representing 16 cultures um, and mm-hmm. ethnicities and countries of origin. So personally, where were you on the night with the uh, uprisings? I was at home <laughs> when, I, when, I, when, I, when I seen it. And um, uh, after that, you know, I, I, me personally, I went to some of the peaceful protests. I went to the memorial, memorial site at the 38th in Chicago where uh, George Floyd was killed. Um, and so, yeah, and I was just, you know, actively watching everything that was going on, um, and just was, you know, emotionally stirred. You know, I think we all were. Yeah, I think, I think definitely we were all emotionally stirred, and, and, um, I want to read this, um, art, artist, because I just, I, I love, Marita did this art, Together We Will Live as Neighbors. We hear the claims you make, you choose to fear, fuel fear and distrust, but we refuse to be divided because we remember who we are, neighbors, connected by our common needs. So together we will live as neighbors, free from the poison and chaos of hatred, free to mm-hmm. widen the circle of belonging until no one is left outside. Mm-hmm. And so I love that. And, and and yet I still find myself, I'm kind of afraid, too. It's like, well, it's all going to go on. And, ooh, ooh. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, that's just yeah. my experience right now. And um, and and yet I'm so I, 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 I've heard other people feel this way, too. There's like we've got these two different things alive in us. On the one hand, there just seems to be a time of real hope for humanity. Mm-hmm. You mean in uh, things getting back to business as usual? You know, I'm glad you said that. No, I don't think getting things back to business as usual, because usual was kind of sad and not very fun. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think getting back, not not getting back, but um, I, mean, I, I don't know, moving forward, no, what do you think? Your, I, I was thinking that was your fear of getting back to uh, business as usual. What I think is that it has to keep, so during and after the uh, the looting and the rioting, a lot of things happened. I mean, people from diverse backgrounds came together. Um, providing food, providing shelter, support, um, and that was that was a real big big deal because there's um, so many things that were happening, and where all this was happening amidst a pandemic, and uh, people were scared. Businesses have been uh, destroyed. I mean, look, we're basically a food desert now. There's not a lot of that. The Target isn't there. The Cub Foods isn't there. This is just people from the kindness of their hearts donating, coming out here to clean up the debris, to give out food to help with uh, uh, sheltering people. And, I mean, it was just, it was, it was amazing. It was amazing. And the Midtown Global Market, we're still here. We're, we're um, uh, providing resources, and we're still trying to provide resources for the community that we love. Um, when I was saying about getting back to business as usual, we can't forget, you know, the pains that we learned. A lot of times, um, you know, a year or so can, can pass, and we'll forget how we got to this historic point in time. This is a very historic uh, point in time right now of all that is happening, especially in you know Minnesota, especially on the South Side. South Side is ground zero uh, for um, a um, a riot and protest that happened across the nation, the world. So, yeah, and so I think what I'm saying, my my fears is um, knowing how much work went into creating the Midtown Global Market and oh. how much work went into supporting that vibrant business community. Having having that is so important. Um, 
Um, it creates jobs. It creates. It, it stimulates. It creates. It creates wealth that sticks with people. Uh, it's vital work. Do you agree with that? Yes. Yes, I do. One hundred percent. Yeah. And so then we were facing the headwinds of the COVID nineteen. I want to change just before the <laughs> uprising. How was COVID on on Midtown Global Market? Oh, it was it was hard. I dare say devastating. Um, we had to. Um, you know, follow the governor's mandate, which meant, you know, we had to close any non-essential businesses. Uh, for me and my colleagues, we had to social distance. We couldn't be, you know, in the office at the same time. Um, so it really changed the way we did our work and the way we were used to doing our work. You know, a lot of um, a lot of uh, uh, colleagues of mine were, were working from home, um, and so that was another new learning curve. Um, and the, the businesses were, were suffering, you know, for, for quite some time because, People want to come in, they want to dine, they want to mingle, they want to be entertained. And, you know, to stop something as normal as that is almost to stop yourself from breathing. Right. And are you guys uh, planning, do you know when you'll reopen? Well, we're open now. We're monitoring it. We're not doing any, in, um, we're not encouraging uh, in-the-market dining, but we're still encouraging counter pickup, curbside pickup, and delivery. Um the mandate right now is a little confusing, so some of our business owners, they want to wait until the language is more clear as far as with uh, dining outside, dining inside. But we are um, we're providing free masks for uh, people that come in and they don't have a mask, um, hand sanitizers, postage everywhere that, you know, we want people to stay safe, social distance, wear a mask that covers both your nose and your mouth, you know, wash your hands, everything. Yeah, we want people to be safe. Um, we want them to get out. We want them to be safe. We want them to come to the market, you know, support us and and to, you know get out and, and kind of relax and get back in some sort of a, uh, a rhythm again. Some sort of rhythm, yeah. Find a, find yeah. the right rhythm. That's find that's the right what, rhythm. <laughs> find the right rhythm. That's what we want to do. So, what has it been like for the independent business people um, and the market um, between COVID and these other? It's been hard. It's been hard, but the uh, the MGM and NDC team, I mean, they are entrepreneurs at heart. They're brilliant. Um, I know that um, one of our uh, one of my colleagues uh, from Friends of the Global Market, uh, Noman, she started up the Meals for Medics, and uh, we got to feeding uh, the um, Alina employees mm. uh, and some of the lab techs and the clinicians there. And from that GoFundMe, there was money that just uh, came out. And we were allowed, we were able to, you know, uh, have our business owners uh, make the food, and we pay them from that to, to um, bring meals over to the uh, the nurses and the, the doctors and the lab techs, basically the frontline staff that was, you know, still out there um, dealing with people that had COVID-19, and they were just there on the front lines. We're going to take a break soon, and when we come back, we're going to be talking more about the uh, the GoFundMe campaign you currently have going. Um, But what did you think of the support that you've been getting? How does that feel? It's, um, I mean, words can't really describe it. Um, You just, you you feel like you're you're a very needed part of the community, that you're known, uh, that, you know, people know you. We know the Midtown Global Market. We love the Midtown Global Market. I mean, that's all the emails and the letters that we're getting and they, the comments that you even said that you've seen is that people really love the market, what we're doing in the neighborhood, and how we really bring people together. So you're going to take a break. We're listening to Food Freedom Radio. We're talking with Ice Demings with the Midtown Global Market. We are willing. Well done. 
Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we witness the seeds of change. Um, I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a human being. And with us on the phone is Ice Demings. He's the property and administrative manager for the uh, Midtown Global Market. And um, so uh, tell us a little bit about the current GoFundMe campaign that you have. Well, this, uh, the Go- Midtown Global uh, GoFundMe Mend is to help all the businesses uh, that were devastated uh, in the community off of Lake Street um, to help the uh, for rebuild. Uh, currently, right now, we're trying to get uh, businesses that have been dislocated into spaces that we have open in the market. And um, it's just basically to help any way we can to rebuild uh, the area. And, yeah, you can go online and just read what people um, wrote. And it is, it is very moving. Um, you know, we love this place. It has special meetings for me, the least I can do is help with this recovery. Uh, I, I just wanted to do something. Even if I don't live in the United States, I don't want right. to do nothing. Uh, please all be safe, and I'm sorry I can only give you $10. <laughs> you hey, it, counts. <laughs> it counts. It counts. And it's just, it, it is really actually this living hope with all of this yeah, yeah. funding. And, and I, I know I, I was down on Lake Street. I've been very careful with the COVID, but I was down on Lake Street just a little bit, and you did, I mean, you could feel the love in the air. Yes, yes. It's, it's everywhere. I mean, like I said, during that time, everyone was, you know, t- to an extent scared. It was just a lot of emotions, and we really came um, and helped each other out, helped, um, helped each other deal with uh, processing these emotions and, you know, what was going on with the time. And I think it, you know, brought a lot of us closer and made us value uh, or made us take a look at our values in a, in a kind of a different way, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um yeah, what do you mean by that? Take take note of our values in a different way. Well, I think we sometimes think that we value things until we're in a position to where um, we really know who our support group is. We kind of just go through our our day to day, and and we're community on the surface until uh, a tragedy happens, and you really find. Uh, uh, who are really um, embedded in the community. Um, when this happened, uh, I mean, not only residents came uh, um, to help the business owners and the neighborhood, but, I mean, people from St. Paul, people from greater Minnesota. So it's really, you know, not just the community of the um, of the area, but the, the Minnesota community. I mean, it was, like you said, there's just such an outpouring in, of, 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 of love and support um, for everyone. And so, um, and so now people can go inside the global market on, on Lake Street today. They can go down and, and visit. And tell us some of the stores that you have open currently so we can support them. Um, it's mostly the restaurants. Um, we have uh, Chiquinos is open, um, Grassroots Gourmet, um, Produce Exchange, um, Los Acampos is open. Let's see, Manny's Tortas. Um, who else? Yeah. Those are the ones so far, but they're they're slowly opening uh, one by one. They have to get up to uh, our 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 COVID nineteen codes, <laughs> right? And then um, then they can they can reopen. Well, and I've heard a lot of people talk about the one of the best ways to create wealth, to build wealth that sticks, is for people to own their own businesses. And and so Midtown Global Market was founded partly with that vision as to how do we help people own their own businesses. Mm-hmm. 
And so is there also um, – and, and so there's a community. How do we support that? Um, and, and do you want to talk more about this connection between um, ownership of businesses, local ownership? Why is that important? Well, that creates jobs in the neighborhood, in the area, and it um, generates income. Um, and to be a, a business owner in a neighborhood, you kind of know what the residents need, and you you build that relationship within the community. Um, it's more than just a business. It's, a, it's relationships with everyone that's around. So when crises like this happen, there's a connection. There's a connection. It's almost like a family member um, that is in need, and you know they're in need, and you're in a position to help them. And the business community is like that. The small business community like that is like that. You know, everyone knows everybody, and so that's why the outpouring is so so far-reaching, especially on Lake Street, is because these are all small businesses, majority small businesses that know everyone, that know each other. And, you know, we go into each other's stores and we conversate and we talk about the times and, you know, family members. And so you build those, deep, those deep-rooted relationships with each other. And so what do you see as the future now for the Lake Street area? You know, if I had a crystal ball... <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's it's hard to say, Laura. I mean, there's a lot of damage. What we do, I can tell you what we don't want. We don't want it to be gentrified. We don't want it to, to, you know, big corporations coming in and kind of making it what they see as the future. We want the small business community to come back and thrive. Um, that's part of um, NDC's goal is to get the small businesses back into the uh, to the neighborhood and for us to 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 thrive better than we did before. And you know, part of it, and it's, it's. I, I have a hard time languagizing this because it doesn't make much sense. <laughs> but I mean, it's part of it is kind of trying to get into a decolonized mindset. So, what mm-hmm. does a new economy actually look and feel like? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, I have this. I guess I'm going to jump on this um, right now because. Uh, um, so, there's a guy who was a contemporary of Columbus, and he wrote something called "A Short Account of the Destruction of the Indies." Um, and uh, he said that Columbus ordered all natives over the age of 13 to pay a hawk's bell full of gold powder every three months. And natives who brought this amount to the Spanish were given a copper token to hang around the necks. The Spanish cut off the hands of those without tokens and let them bleed to death. Um, thousands of natives committed suicide. So this, and, and so then Columbus's forced labor system was also described by his son. And his son said, in the gold mines um, where everyone, a person of over 14 years of age, handed pay this large hawk bill of gold dust. Um, and if not, there was consequences. There was physical punishment. And that was kind of a jump, but I actually think that some of our economic systems still have living in them these these values that are not really honoring our individual integrity and our individual just right to breathe. Mm-hmm. That sounds like um, Leopold uh, from Belgium. He, he used those same tactics. I believe it was Leopold. Yeah, it's a, you know, NDC, the Neighborhood Development Center, that's that's what we, we do. We get involved in the community, and it's really on a individual, person-by-person basis. Um, every person's need is different. Um, you have to have the ability to listen and to hear them um, so that you know what type of resources they need and how you can help um, is the best uh advice i could i could give you or or to explain to you 
Yeah, and that's that's listening to each other. And so, I mean, if we had if we had a community of people who could listen, really listen from a heart centered place, I think that would be a heck of a world to leave our kids. Yes, of course. Yes, we got to start working on that every day, each and one of us, each and every one of us. Yeah. Well, I thank you so much, Ice Demings with Midtown Global Market. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Uh, that is it. That thank it. you, Laura, for having me on your show. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate your time this morning and appreciate Midtown Global Market. Again, you have a GoFundMe campaign that will go to uh, Midtown Global Market. And there are so many wonderful people pouring in donations. I have a feeling that it's going to be okay. <laughs> I really do. I have that feeling it's going to be okay. So you're listening to Food Freedom Radio. We're going to come back and talk about the Native American Medicine Garden. Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture. A person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person. Um, and joining us now is the um, educator of indigenous history, biological, and ecological knowledge, coordinator of the Native American Medicine Gardens. Uh, so I'm really pleased to welcome to us uh, to Food Freedom Radio, Francis Bayong. Um, welcome, welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you, Laura. Good Thank to be here. You. Yeah. Yeah, so you and I have met a long time ago. I think even President Bush was, I think Bush was president at that time when we first met. So known you for a long, yeah. long time. But tell us a little bit about yourself, your background. Um, I am Oglala Lakota. I was raised, um, born in um, the area of our treaty lands and our homeland in what is called Western South Dakota, but um, grew up on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Um, and also the Ihuntanwan uh, Reservation or the Ihuntanwan Oyate, the Yankton. Um, went to South Dakota State, got a degree in landscape design. Did that for a while, um, quite a while. <laughs> um, designed edible food landscapes, that sort of thing, and then got a, uh, the position of taking care of the Native American medicine gardens that at the University of Minnesota. So yeah, so the, the yeah for uh, for the Native American Medicine Garden. Um, uh, tell us where that's located and and what's there. So it sits on the St. Paul campus, and it's a, a third of an acre of um, decolonizing the land that it sits on, which is actually Dakota land anyway. Um, but we're doing that, and then. Um, teaching food sovereignty, um, teaching the, our history, our, uh, the cultural knowledge we have. Um, and we are located, it's right across the, the street in the research fields across from the, um, I think it's called the Natural Bell Museum or yeah. Natural History Bell Museum on the St. Paul campus. So in August of 2019, um, the university with that property right across from Bell Museum, this is prime land, um, and the university asked you for a, a, a vision. So do you want to share with us the vision that you presented to the university in August of yeah. 2019? Yeah, so the vision um, given to Dean Brianberg and CFAN's administration was in their ask to support myself and the, the garden and what they could do to do that. 
and I came up with the vision of five acres that really is the corner um, that I discussed right across from the, the Bell Museum. And what it would do is to engage us more fully in our uh, food sovereign movement, our food sovereignty movement, and bring back the indigenous plants that we used for our food system that will, you know, for millennia. And that was part of the, the vision. The other part was to teach um, to indigenous, non-indigenous students, faculty, staff, community members beyond um, about this, to have immersion camps, uh, having the, the Ocheri Shakoin language um, there and develop this system to bring back, like I said, and engage fully in our food sovereignty once again. And I'm just going to briefly, because I, I kind of started out, I know, I know when you first met, I was thinking Bush was, was still president, but, and I've attended several things at the Native American Medicine Garden, and it's a third acre, but it's also, um, it's about um, returning to the garden in some ways. It's about a different way of looking at, at life. Um, and I know I had the experience of, several times, when I look at my plants, I, I now look at the, the plants and the life, their life forms, just like dogs are life forms, cats are life forms, pigs are life forms, I'm a life form, so is the plant. <laughs> right. I mean, we're just right. all we're just all beings. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 if I see the tree as a, a sacred entity, it doesn't reduce my worth. In fact, exactly. it enhances it. Exactly. You get to, you get an understanding of that better once you do that, instead of looking at it as a commodity. Right. And so, and looking not looking at the tree as lumber. Um, but to look at the tree uh, and see the complex relationships that exist within a tree, I mean, it is phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, it, it supports so many different communities. And, you know, it's, it's what we believe and what we value. And it is at the base of why we exist here is that as we look around, Matakwayasin uh, means we are all related. It's just what you're saying. And that the value of us is just as important and acknowledge the value of everything around us is just as important. There's a quote I, I like uh, from E.O. Wilson. Uh, we, can create a, uh, we can create the beginnings of a paradise if we do three things. Use the unrelenting application of reason, have a basic sense of kindness, and an understanding of who we are. And that understanding of who we are is that we are not separate from the nature, but we are part of nature. At least that's what I'm thinking. Do you, do you agree with that? I'm sorry, you cut off. Oh, okay, I'm, okay. I'm well, then, no, that, that's fine. Because, but, but part of who we are, our, our own essence, is linked to the essence of, in the nature. So, what we do to the earth, we are doing to ourselves. Well, and and that's. You know, what we bring up all the time as indigenous people here, we have our cultures. We still practice those cultures and the values that you just said and, and quoted, that we still exist within those values and share those with whomever we can because the the hardest thing that has happened to all of us is the colonization of our land-based cultures, and that mm -hmm. has taken that away from us or we've forgotten and are practicing something different. And that land-based, that place-based understanding is something that few of us uh, really learned about. I, I was very fortunate. I did something with clouds and water. It was a three-day retreat on uh, remembering, and, and I got just a, a, a hint of what it meant to be uh, place-based. Um, 
how would you describe that? That way of looking at place instead of almost we almost are more linear on looking at ourselves in time. Well, everything that exists for us to be here has already was already there. The food, medicine, and there's no distinction between the two. The air, the water, everything that was all medicine, food. Um, it was all there, and so what? What the connection is is the understanding that you don't exist without what is there, and you don't exist, and I should say you don't thrive without what is what is there and what was what was given to us, and now we have human constructs that have taken that away and led us down this path of a, a huge disconnection from that. And most land-based cultures are now non-existent because of that. And those that still exist, like ours, are trying to teach others that connection because we all have that. Mm-hmm. We all yearn for it. We just don't realize how important it is for our survival and the planet's survival. We do yearn for it. I mean, maybe we have a tree in our yard that we knew that our grandfather had planted, or I know how olive trees are are really, um, you know, they're seen as ancestors. And so this this really having a place-based, heart-based world. And so to go back to your vision that you presented to the um, university in August of 2019, um, this would be across right. from the Bell Museum near where the Native American garden would be, is some place that would actually um, evoke that place-based knowing. Cool. And, and what what I really want people to understand, and this is what we've been teaching um, about at the garden itself, the third of acre right now, is that we all once had the environments, we all once had those things that we want to say reproduce or help bring back um, to show people that this is what we had, this is how we lived. Mm-hmm. We didn't have to buy food; food was free. Water was free. All these things around us were free. We didn't need that much to exist because we knew whatever we took, we had to take only what we needed, not extend over that. So all these environments that are almost now gone, we existed from from for millennia. Right. So what was the university's response to the vision that you laid out for that area? Um, I got my contract, or my contract was not renewed um, May of this year. May of, May of this year. So no that's, and and I, right. I I was and so here's your terms of your employment. So you you worked at the garden uh, for you had a full time salary of twenty thousand dollars for ten years. Um, currently uh, you're making thirty nine thousand, and we can point out that the average salary in Minnesota is sixty two thousand, according to Zip Recruiter. And then about two months ago, or less than two months ago, you were told that you're they're not going to renew your contract. Right. The I was waiting for a response or the vision and moving forward and continuing the, our indigenous food. Um, but when I got the news that the contract was not going to be renewed and other things played out as well, um, that's when I, I realized this is the same game we've been playing and it just is at the forefront now. And let me explain something before we go further. The garden is not owned by the University of Minnesota. That was created by my partner, who is Changu Lakota, Dr. Barbara Batleon, and 
I took it over after she was forced to resign from the University of Minnesota because of assimilation pressure. So for the last 16 years, I took it as its own entity. It's just been housed administratively supported by different colleges at the University of Minnesota. So um, what do you mean it's not owned by the University of Minnesota? Maybe I'll just ask that one. I'll, I'll have. What do you mean by ownership? There, yeah, it's a difference of culture. Um, mm-hmm. Culture, the, the, I will say this in terms, colonized um, white supremacist culture views everything in front of them as ownership, and they can use it as they please and use it up and distribute it and commoditize it. Our our understanding of ownership is that we are caretakers, and it is not ours and needs to be taken care of so that seven generations from now, it is as good as it was or better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a, that's a lovely uh, – what was cool – so you only learned about this two months ago, but what was fun to witness is the activation of the food sovereignty community. So tell us about that effort. That's what they did. <laughs> um, it's a community, and this is something that is part of what I've been doing, is going out to our tribal nations, university, all the stakeholders that are on the university faculty, staff, students, and the community beyond, and bringing them into this space and teaching what I, you know, what I said before, what we've been teaching. And the, a huge component of that is food sovereignty, but more so it's it's the un- injustices that have been happening for a very, very, very long time. In fact, we all know this since settlers stepped foot on Turtle Island or what you all call North America. So that food sovereignty is important to come back to because that's our existence. And the injustices that have led up to that continue. So we're going to take so a break. Made this vote. Sure. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about um, this community rally, and you've got your contract restored, and we're going to talk about the future. What's the future of the Native American Medicine Garden, and how does it connect to colonization, and how do we decolonize? We'll figure it out. What you to me. What you do. Food Freedom Radio, where we witness the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, and we're talking with Francis with the Native American Medicine Garden. And uh, in May, just um, two short months ago, he got a letter saying he's no longer going to have his contract at the Native American Garden. But a wonderful group of community members really rallied. Over 550 people signed a signature as a public letter. And um, and I'm going to read just a little bit from their most recent letter. Um, Mr. Floyd's murder is not connect is not disconnected from what has happened here for centuries to Native peoples. The violence we speak of is against the outgrowth of colonial and its drive for land, labor, institutionalization, and ownership of knowledge. As our institutions adapt to practices to foster justice and equity, um, it must also address the unjust situation it has created through the treatment. So, Francis, tell us about what you want to say about um, how you were treated by the college. Um, Like most indigenous programs, individuals, staff, faculty, uh, our indigenous knowledge is co-opted, taken, those things. But more than that, it's an abusive, hostile environment that was set up. And 
What is interesting is that President Gable gave a statement right with George on previous to George Floyd's memorial and, and, and said that the university needs to do better. I'm not quoting her, but you can read it. It went out to the community and it's part of the, the groups putting it out there and, and using her words to actually explore better relationship building that should have happened when this university was established or even before that. But the treatment of myself over the 16 years, nobody should go through that. Nobody should have to deal with that. But, and I explained to people because I sent out a letter to uh, addressing it to President Gable and others that, you know, I do this for my people. We've gone through many things. Uh, the murder of George Floyd and in the black community, the murders that happened, just as, or actually there's a report now, more indigenous uh, people get killed than any other population in the U.S. per capita. And that's something I want to point out because we aren't in the headlines. We aren't in the headlines about this. But this is why people have rallied and, and supported us in this effort because the wrongdoings of the University of Minnesota have to stop. I'm going to read on our land. Yeah, and I mean, I absolutely love the University of Minnesota, too. I mean, I, I really do love the University of Minnesota. I think it performs a vital function. But I also think that there are right now really key learnings. And and the idea of um, the medicine garden, the idea of having this place-based understanding, I mean, it could really create a, a much better world for future generations. And this, you know, we all have so much trauma and and, and bitterness. And so how do we how do we face that trauma? And and it's hard when you have to deal with people who can't hear you and don't let you breathe. Well, the thing about it, I want to say this, I don't love the University of Minnesota. I don't like it because it's set up in a white supremacist um, system. It has set up that where racism, oppression, uh, co-opting, cultural knowledge, all these things are existing and actually happen every day. So the thing is, they can do better. They're a higher ed institute. They should be doing better because they represent the state, which is called the state of Minnesota, but the, the educational system that they have. And if it's not addressing this, then they fall very, very short because this oppression isn't just happening to us. It's happening and not just to the black community. It's happening to poor people who are of all colors, of all uh, sexual identity, everything else. And it's happening to women that don't get paid enough or are sexually harassed all the time and, and things like that. That's happening all throughout the University of Minnesota. These things have to be addressed. It's not hard. What is the difficult part is white supremacy does not want to be let go of because of the benefits and the benefits they have and continue to get. So tell us about the land grant um, and, and, and that the University of Minnesota is a land grant organization. And you were talking about um, a study um, in, terms of, in, in, in terms of the land grant. Yep. So during President Lincoln's time, he not only signed the paper to hang 38 of the Dakota uh, relatives, he also signed the Morrill Act, which was Representative Morrill passed 
I'll pass this act to get into indigenous land for land grant institutions because during that time, it was during the Civil War, they were faltering and failing. So their idea was take it away from the Indian, uh, you know, like everything else. Let's take their land and then give it to the universities so they can benefit. But let me read you a line from this. In the in fiscal year 2019, the University of Minnesota's endowment was valued at $2.5 billion. Part of that is the land that they have. That's our land. And and you've been um, on a third acre doing uh, native plants um, for about 20 years. Let's yeah. talk, you know, it, 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 let's talk about how the community has rallied around you. I mean, that has been sure. fun to see, a witness. It's It's been humbling. I, I didn't do this for that, and I didn't do this. I wanted to help everybody and educate them on things that they weren't getting from the University of Minnesota. There is no indigenous history except from American Indian Studies, which is a great department. It's just along the other colleges and out in the St. Paul campus, very little indigenous knowledge was being taught. And also the Bell Museum has no, <laughs> had no indigenous history in their museum. So we've been working with them and, and um, cooperating or cooperatively learning um this this way to get that indigenous history into the Bell Museum. So the rallying has been very humbling because for the 16 years I've been there, this is what I've been doing. And it's to benefit everyone that comes and especially to bring people's attention to uh, not just the mistreatment but of the past, but the mistreatment of our people right now and that the food insecurity for them is all of us is, is, is very real. And this is a huge part of it, but also the history of the land and the history of the land that the university sits on is vitally important to that. And for them to actually step up and recognize that and put some action to it, that's what the rally is about. And that's why people are stepping out because this has happened for too long and Maybe this is the time. Maybe we'll it is see. the time. If people want to get, we're down. If people want to get more information about Native American Medicine Garden. How how can they do that? Um, well, let me clarify something. When I wrote the letter to President Gable, I told them I wasn't accepting the contract for the renewal just because of the abusive and hostile environment in CFANS that I would return to. So I'm not doing that. But they can get a hold of the Facebook page, UMN Native American Medicine Gardens. Thank you so much, Francis. And if you'd like more information or you want to be added to the listserv and read all the public documents, you can also reach out to Chris Bell. That's bell0259 at umn.edu. Thank you so much for listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota.
Oh, bless you, who has 